This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. So Dan, obviously, uh, you know that there was an election yesterday. And one of my favorite things about elections, they have the actual article in the newspaper, but then they always have a little graph there. And they're like, oh, here's how everything broke down. I like that. Yeah, it's 538, like sites like that have more been using big data and analysis of that to kind of give us information about what's happening. I tend to trust them a lot, but yeah, the visuals are, they stick with you, especially the maps when they show you like the mapping of voting rates, whether it's in your state or nationally, and it's, ooh, that's interesting. I always want to know more. So that's one of the things when I see it, I'm like, ooh. And when you read a newspaper, and sometimes I do, like an actual newspaper, you can't click on for more, right? But I always like, oh, I want to investigate. Like, what does this number mean? How did these people vote last time? How have things shifted? Right. Um, But that's just because, like, I'm really curious in what's going on. I know that some people probably just look at it and be like, oh, yeah, it's there. Well, first thing, thinking about old newspapers, the one thing is I, like, hardly can imagine, like, without hyperlinks anymore. Oh, yeah. When I think of the past, I'm like, how do your newspapers not have hyperlinks? Anyway, sorry, that's a tangent. But when I look at the data visualizations, I feel like I'm also less critical of it. I'm like, oh, it's their oh, really? data. Because I think when I read text, I'm like, oh, I disagree with that. And right. I'm like good at like, analyzing text. But when I get data, it's there's like a lot of trust because it's like, well, I don't know what, like, yeah, how yeah. to put that together. I don't know the information that went into it. That's interesting. Do we need to teach kids stuff like that? Do they need to be better at analyzing that and understanding that type of stuff? I would imagine so. Hey, so I know we're just kind of two guys at the podcast. (laughs) But if only there is someone who we can kind of talk to about this. We do have someone. Tamara Schreiner is coming on the podcast today all the way from Michigan. Tamara, what's going on? Hi there. Not much. Glad to be here. We are super excited to have you on. Now, I do have one question before we start. I know that the picture to word ratio is one picture is equal to 1000 words, right? Yes. Okay, perfect. (laughs) What about a picture with words? How many words is that worth? It's got to be 5000. 5000. This is all very specific and scientific. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Tamara, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. I'm an assistant professor at Grand Valley State University, which is in both Grand Rapids and Allendale, Michigan, on the west side of Michigan, not far from Lake Michigan. Is it a really sprawling campus that it's in two places? I was recently at the University of Minnesota, and it actually goes over the Mississippi River. Uh, And I thought that was impressive that it went over a big river. It's not that sprawling, but um, it has two campuses that have become equally big and important, I guess. So I'm on the Allendale campus. That's where the history department is, which is where I'm housed. And then there is a downtown campus as well. And that 
initially was a smaller campus, but now has become really big and important. So, and more, more people know where Grand Rapids is than Allendale because Grand Rapids is Beer City, USA. So, really, I did not know that. I didn't know that either. And I immediately want to travel there. Why is that? Well, it has Founders Brewing here. They're fantastic. Yes. And some other favorites are Brewery Vivant. And there's a newer one called Gray Line. So there's lots of good craft breweries. Do they spell it with the E or with the A? The gray. It's spelled with an E. A nice, classy. So how did you get to this point where you got to live in an awesome town with cool breweries and be an assistant professor? Well, I did my PhD at University of Michigan and had lived there since my undergrad days and Grand Valley had a job opening and it worked out with my husband's job. He's an academic as well that we move over to Grand Rapids and luckily I got the job and it's ended up being perfect for us. We're a big water enthusiast too so it's nice to be close to Lake Michigan. Oh and Rapids indicates that there's water. There is. There's a lot of water. The Grand River runs through Grand Rapids and then And we're also close to the lake. Uh, This is more geography of (laughs) Michigan than people probably were expecting when we started this this episode. Is Michigan the one with the like the random part that's up north? Like there's Michigan and then there's like this random piece that's also Michigan that's not attached to it? Yeah, we Michiganders like to call that the Upper Peninsula. (laughs) I remember as a kid being confused that that was still a part of Michigan. What Michiganders like to say is that's up north, which is a very Michigan thing to say. Most of the time when you say up north, people are confused. What's your background in education? Yeah, so I was a social studies teacher in both middle school and high school. I taught history, uh, U.S. history, world history, civics, geography at one point. The only thing I haven't taught is economics. And then I I got my degree in the College of Education at U of M, but Grand Valley is a somewhat unusual program, I think. I know that there are others that exist, but the history education specialist at Grand Valley is housed in the history department and the English education specialist and so on. So the College of Education at Grand Valley is actually on the Grand Rapids campus while I'm at the Allendale campus. My degree is in educational studies, and then I was a a classroom teacher for about 10 years. Very cool. Maybe it's a Michigan thing, too, because I know I have a friend, Stacy Kerr, who's at Central Michigan, and she's in the geography department there. Yeah, it's kind of nice because... You you felt I felt a little bit disconnected, I guess, from the history department at U of M. And here you are. I'm working with and next to historians all the time. And so it's interesting to hear their perspective on history education and the challenges that some of their students in history classrooms have when they have them in their freshman and sophomore survey courses and just sort of the way that their interests within the discipline. It's kind of nice. That would be nice. I'm going to go walk over to the history department today and just tell them I'm here to stay. <laughs> Michigan seems like a dream to you now. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> right? Water, beer, and historians. That's pretty much all you can ask for. 
Tamara, so first we would like to congratulate you on your publication in Theory and Research in Social Education, which is no easy feat. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Your publication is called Data Literacy for Social Studies, Examining the Role of Data Visualizations in K-12 Textbooks, which is why we were talking a little bit about data at the beginning. Can you tell us about this topic and your research? Sure. So I became interested in this topic when I was doing my dissertation research, which was on how people use historical knowledge to reason about political issues. And it was a think aloud study where people were using different texts that I provided to think about the issue of partisanship and politics, go figure. And one of the texts that I gave participants, just because it was, they were in the news and they were related to the topic of partisanship, was uh, and contained data visualizations. So I think one of them was a pie chart and one of them a bar graph. And I was working with political scientists and high school students, and I found that the high school students didn't do anything but try and pull the most basic information from the data visualizations. They didn't look at where it was coming from. They didn't look at who created it. They didn't ask anything about, well, I wonder what kinds of questions were asked. They didn't consider context, any of that. So I thought that was really interesting. And a lot of the work that has been done around historical literacy and political literacy has been focused on verbal texts. And I really wanted to better understand what people did with these data visualizations. And it just so happened that Grand Valley was really interested in data literacy because other social studies educators there had recognized in recent times that their students had a really hard time analyzing and interpreting different kinds of data visualizations that were used to convey historical information and that they had a tough time writing about what it meant, what they meant, and integrating it with verbal text. So they happened to be really interested in data visualizations and were really supportive of my research and so I thought that a good place to start was to see how prevalent data visualizations are in typical social studies resources. And short of looking at every website that students might use to study social studies, I decided that I would begin with classroom textbooks. Uh, so I looked at 42 of them which was very boring, going through page after page after page, looking for these data visualizations, with the idea that I wanted to understand how prevalent they were, how frequently students would encounter them when they were using their textbooks, and what kinds of data visualizations they would want to run across. Were maps more common or charts or graphs and were did certain disciplines seem to favor some data visualizations over others to think about how these changed and how they were how the the use and reading of data visualizations was supported within the texts themselves so this does seem kind of boring looking at the 42 like you were going page by page oh my i was i was going page by page i i just recorded 
every data visualization that I came across and what it was, which also required some investigations of the different names of data visualizations. I had no idea that there were so many different kinds of maps. <laughs> um, so I learned a lot through this process as well. Yeah, so I just, I recorded what each one of them was and the features surrounding the data visualization. That's, that was my data set that I worked with for my study. What did you find was most common? So maps are definitely the most common in elementary school. And then, and maps stay quite prevalent, obviously, through middle school and high school. But the nature of the maps change and the complexity of the maps changes. So what was really interesting that is once you get into high school, there are so many different potential layers that you can put onto a map. And as students move through different levels of school, they're going to encounter maps that have more layers including sort of timelines that are showing change over time, different uh, physical layers, different distributions of whatever the theme of the map is. And to be able to read that map and make sense, complete sense of it, you need to be able to see all of those different elements of the map and to be able to connect them and try and figure out what the story of the map is. That being said, I, I went off on a tangent kind of talking about maps and what I was finding, but they're also going to, as they move through school, encounter more variety in the different types of data visualization. So as I said, maps are the most common in elementary school, but then the variety of data visualizations really increases as they move on to middle school and to high school. And they'll start to come across more population graphs and pie charts and bar graphs and stacked bar graphs and um, line graphs and all kinds of different visuals that also become more complex as they move along with additional layers and, and stacking those together and putting them side by side, juxtaposing different graphs. And I realized when I was looking at these that, you know, if they don't have the basics when they're in elementary school, then they're going to have a really tough time when they get to middle school and high school working with these much more complicated data visualizations and trying to make sense of them while they're also trying to make sense of more complex verbal text. So what would a good lesson look like in elementary school that helped students build their data literacy? And should they just use what's in textbooks? Is that enough? Or should we be bringing in outside sources? Yeah. So the reason, one reason that I really like the idea of looking at textbooks first was because, you know, we, we know that some schools have issues with access to computers, with internet access. And even if they have older textbooks, most schools, more schools are going to have access to a social studies textbook. And while I would love to see teachers moving outside of the textbook, I think that textbooks do provide a treasure trove of data visualizations that teachers can use to help students acquire data literacy skills. So a good lesson. I think if you pick up a textbook and you look at oftentimes the beginning of the textbook, you'll probably find lessons on reading data visualizations that the textbook 
authors have included. That may be one place to start. That teaches basic data literacy skills about what the different elements are and what they might mean. But what's really important is that students learn how to integrate data visualizations with verbal text. So they need to think about how it is that it extends the information in the verbal text, how it supports the information in the verbal text, and what the the full story is. Because as you said in the beginning, we're often seeing these kinds of data visualizations when people are giving over arguments or explanations of what's happening in politics or economics or whatever the case may be. They're trying to tell a story with the data visualizations. And so providing lessons that will help students see how the verbal and the visual support each other I think is really an important aspect of teaching with data visualizations. So a lot of this seems to focus on students becoming more critical consumers of data, right, data literacy. I'm curious, have you come across or would you recommend that teachers also push students to create data as a way to better understand it? Absolutely. Um, I'm glad that you asked that because you really, you really should create data visualizations to understand the way that people, the ways that people can manipulate data. So data numbers can lie. Numbers do lie, and people can manipulate data visualizations to to support an argument that they want to support. They can leave certain things out. They can change the the way that the the x-axis and the y-axis look. They can decide that they're going to include or exclude a layer on a map to tell whatever the particular narrative is. And to really understand that, I think it's important that students create data visualizations on their own because then they can play around with those choices and the way that they can change the way a data visualization looks based on the decisions that they, the author, make. So one of the most powerful experiences that I had recently was I went to a, a class on GIS at this Digital Humanities Institute at the University of Victoria, and I was creating maps and different layers of maps. And it helped me to think in ways that I had never thought about before how map makers make choices about what they're going to include on a map and what they're not going to include on a map. And that, that's, it's just such a powerful experience. So if students have an opportunity to do that, then they're going to better understand and be able to critique the data visualizations that other people have created. And you can really do that with, with paper and pencil, with, with crayons or colored pencils. I think we, when we think of data visualizations, we think of this really high tech thing where you need a computer and some sort of software or program, online program to create the data visualization, but you don't. You can create maps, you can create charts and graphs using simple classroom tools. And it's actually really cool to do that because there's nothing more powerful than the human mind and thinking about how they want to lay out data. So there are actually opportunities to visualize data that we don't always have access to when we're trying to use a, a difficult computer program. So I could, for example, draw a map where I tried to identify places in the United States where there was a convergence of water, beer, and historians. And <laughs> So obviously, then I would learn that that's at Grand Valley State. I feel like Boston's in the running, though. Oh, so that's interesting. So I need to see where those things converge by creating a data map. 
Yeah, exactly. That is a good project to just investigate where the where historians and and beer come together in the U.S. I think Colorado might be in the run. Somewhere in Colorado might be in the running too. But I'm yeah, not sure. <laughs> that's true. Colorado, they got it all. Damn it. Uh, I think this is a really interesting topic that doesn't get taken up enough. And so I really appreciate you, you know, writing this article and, and coming on our podcast, bringing this to the field. Do you have any suggestions about like what teacher educators and classroom teachers can do to start working on this stuff? Yeah. I mean, so first of all, I think that they should pick up the resources that they already have in their classroom and start looking for data visualizations. I think that once you, you start looking for them, then you're going to see that they're everywhere. They're everywhere in the books that you use, whether that's a textbook or a trade book. You know, pick up your favorite historian's work and see if they have data visualizations in there. Beyond that, there are lots of websites that have data visualizations that are really good for social studies classrooms. So one of my favorites is Our World in Data that has a ton of interactive and static graphs and charts that talk about changes in population and energy use and all kinds of things throughout the world over time. I think that looking not only at current maps, but also maps on sites like the David Rumsey's historical maps is a really good resource. Um, The U.S. Census Bureau has great data for students to use. And it also, I think has, if I remember correctly, I've looked at a lot of data visualization websites recently, has lessons for teachers and ways students can manipulate data on the website. Hans Rosling's Gapminder is a fantastic resource. Their students can um, change what's on the X, Y, and Z axis on graphs. And so they can sort of see what what happens when you add different variables and and ask different questions of historical and contemporary data. Wait, wait, there's a z-axis? Yes, there is a z-axis. Is that like <laughs> coming at me? <laughs> no, you can do it two-dimensionally as well, where you can either have it running vertically on the right side of a graph. You know, typically, you have the y-axis on the left side of the graph when you're looking at it. Sometimes you'll see one also on the right side. Just depends on how it is that they want to put together the graph. This is crazy. Um, so, if the so listener, yeah. If listeners could see Michael and I's faces, we have no clue what's happening right now. <laughs> well, that's why, I mean, so that's one of the reasons why I think it's really important to just start with simple tools because you can kind of imagine the story that you want to tell with data and then just work with color pencils and and paper to create visualizations yourself and work it out in the way that makes sense to you while you're trying to tell a story with data. And I think that seems to be a really important lesson. And it's a similar lesson to a lot of research. I think when people especially see quantitative research or other forms of research, they tend to not see it as interpretive, that the researcher or whoever put together the charts or graphs or, or findings um, had to do a lot of interpretation and make a lot of choices. And so by practicing this, you start to see that there's a, there's a qualitative, subjective component of data. Data is almost infinite and endless. And so we have to choose what we collect and how we put it together. And I think students don't always see that. They just take it as 
fact, which is problematic when people are, are advocating for certain things using data. So we need to be data literate, as I guess you argue. Yeah, that's right. That is a really important point. And I think it's it's students that we have in our elementary, middle, and high school classes, but it's also adults who are just out voting and people do tend to believe things when they have numbers attached to it and they don't think about how interpretive it is. But it is interpretive. And I think what really struck me is to think about how few people know how to really work with and manipulate data and that they have so much power in their hands because other people are intimidated by data and they do tend to believe things with numbers and data attached to it. And so I want to empower students to be able to critique those things. Seven out of 10 people agree with this statement. Michael, that right. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. I was, I'm glad that we both had bad jokes at the same time. Mine was, <laughs> you know, one person who really knew how to manipulate data was Captain Picard because he always got him to do what he wanted. Uh... Those- those are both very good. Yes. <laughs> they're both they're both the correct answers. They're both very bad jokes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, that actually brings up can we talk about pronunciation? Data is a character on Star Trek Next Generation. Right. Is it data? Is that what date hold on. How do you say what is D A T A? My understanding is that there is no correct way to say it. You can say data, you can say data. What did you say? You can say datum. <laughs> oh, datum, I think, is the individual. Yes. Yes. Individual factor or number is a datum. Yeah, that's usually what I ask people when I introduce myself at a party is how do you pronounce data, data or data? Yeah. And then that's how I make my decision about whether or not I'm going to continue talking with them. <laughs> oh my Absolutely. That's, I wonder how we fared. That is, that's a good test. Um, to see how patient people are with you, right? <laughs> well, it's funny because I find myself when someone says, I usually say data, but when someone says data, then I find myself starting to say data because I guess I want to bond with them. So, yeah. <laughs> What would you say to a person at a party who said they have a plethora of datum? I would definitely just walk away from that person. Yeah. That- <laughs> I'm already struggling to make friends in Allendale, and it's the place that has all the things I want, so I'm going to have to work on this. Yeah. So, Tamara, we really enjoyed having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. It was fun for us, too. Now, Tamara, where can our listeners find you or your work online? So um, listeners can feel free to email me at GBSU. My email address is s-h-r-e-i-n-e-t at gbsu dot edu. And I'll be happy to answer any questions that people have or just talk to people who are also interested in data visualizations because believe it or not, there aren't that many people out there who are interested in them. You should all bond at a cocktail party. Yeah, you have a plethora of resources you've provided us, and we are going to put those all in our show notes. And so everyone should make sure to check the show notes, both for a link to the article and to the resources Tamara's provided us. So thank you for sharing all of this with us today. We really enjoyed it. Thanks. It was my pleasure. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat about pronunciation, Or if you are in one of those areas that have history, beer, 
and water. Hit us up. Tweet us yep. at Visions of Ed or on Facebook. And of course, if you haven't already, please subscribe to us and get your friends to subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And Apple Podcasts is actually broken. You can only do five-star reviews for our <laughs> podcast. It won't let you do any of the other numbers, so don't even try it. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>